Welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with retired neonatologist, author and speaker. Susan practiced full-time in the NICU for over 30 years and wrote a book about her experience. So many babies, my life balancing a busy medical career and motherhood. She's an expert in physician burnout, breastfeeding medicine and donor human milk banking. During her career, Susan published over 30 peer-reviewed papers on today's podcast, we'll be chatting about burnout, physical and emotional exhaustion. A very welcome to podcast, Susan Landers, MD. How are you today, Susan? Oh, I'm great, David. Thank you. No, my, my pleasure. So let everybody know, where are you right now on planet Earth? I am in Austin, Texas in the USA. And it's a beautiful spring day, a couple of weeks after an unexpected ice storm felled oh many trees in our city. I have lived in Texas for over 30 years. I married a native Texan and had three little Texans, and this is home. Uh, However, I grew up in South Carolina, so I'm a southerner by heritage. Actually, by heritage, I'm from Ireland and Scotland, because (laughs) that's where my ancestors came from, to North Carolina, Um, So I grew up in South Carolina. I went to medical school in Charleston, South Carolina, and decided to break out of the Deep South and went to Dallas, Texas for pediatric residency training. I fell in love with neonatology, the intensive care of newborn infants and premature babies. And I moved to Houston, Texas for a neonatology fellowship. So six years of training I became a doctor long before I became a mother. (laughs) uh, Yeah, yeah. So I I didn't change my name. I got married at the end of my fellowship. And my husband and I met at Texas Children's Hospital, which is now one of the largest hospitals in the country. Um, So I had great training, wonderful experience. And I have enjoyed practicing neonatology for over 34 years. I'm now retired. And in my retirement, I have been doing some writing and some speaking. And I love talking to people on podcasts. I love trying to reach other uh, healthcare providers and working mothers especially, because I think this topic, burnout, is so important and it is so prevalent right now. I like to talk about it to let people know that there are ways out of it. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, it's, it's um, can I just ask, was, is your husband a doctor as well? Is that how you met him? Yes, he is. He was a pediatric nephrologist. That's children's kidney diseases. So he practiced um, a lot in the ICU and did dialysis on kids and kidney biopsies. His patients were had more chronic disease and my patients had more acute disease in the NICU. So um, we always had different perspectives, but we enjoyed talking about medicine and sharing our endeavors, our stresses, our concerns with each other. My children say, um, when we sat down at the table for dinner at night, 
mom and dad first talked about medicine. And when they got everything off their chest, then they asked the kids how their day was, (laughs) how they did in school and what was going on. And I went, oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry we did that. (laughs) And, And my daughter said, that's just the way it was. You and dad were so wired up from your days in the hospital. So, but I did enjoy having a husband who was a sounding board to all of my stresses. And is your husband, is he still practicing now or is he retired as well? No, he retired as well. And he's really waffling around trying to figure out what to do with himself besides play guitar and garden right. um, <laughs> and learn Spanish. So he's and how's, got, how's he doing with the out. Spanish? Is he doing okay with the Spanish? He's doing well with his Spanish. In fact, we're going to take a trip to Oaxaca, Mexico in the in the next couple of weeks. And I'm counting on him to be the translator. So we'll see. And would he not follow into the suit that you're going down in terms of your podcasting and trying to educate uh, people with regards to burnout and so on? Would he, would he not be interested in that? Or has he kind of said, that's that's enough? He said he does not want to do that. And I don't think he ever got burned out. I don't think (laughs) pediatric nephrologists have the stress that um, some of us and other specialties do. And he doesn't want to write, but he has been very supporting of my writing and my talking on podcasts. So uh, maybe he'll change his mind. I don't know. It's his retirement. He'll figure it out. (laughs) And did your, any of your children follow into the field? I have an older daughter who is a pediatric ICU nurse. Wow. Okay. Yeah. She's working on her master's to become a, a pediatric acute care nurse practitioner. My younger daughter is finishing college. She wants to be a psychotherapist. And my son broke the mold. He is a cinematographer and he lives with his wife in Los Angeles. All right, trying so it, to make yeah, trying to make movies. <laughs> oh, okay. And how is he getting on with that? Do we have another Steven Spielberg or a Jerry Brooklyn? Not yet. Not, Not yet. yet. Um, he makes a lot of good commercials, and he's made a couple of indie films, but he hasn't had a big break yet. So we'll see. He's well, so fe- young. He's only thirty-eight. So. Oh well, he's very young. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Anyway, that's. Uh, but it's great to see that the the uh, the, the two daughters have. Obviously, the, the chats at the dinner table with mum and dad chatting about uh, work first before before everybody else is kind of rubbed off on exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> always taking care of other people. That was the message. That's it. Why not? Well, what we'll do is then, just before we start uh, pretty much our topic uh, today, to try to get a career element into the uh, podcast today, can, do you have any suggestions for any budding individual wanting to enter the medical field? I mean... The stages of between, say, high school and college, is there any specific topics or subjects they need to focus on and concentrate? And in terms of grades as well, what are we what are we yeah. talking about here? It's still um, difficult to get into medical school, whether you're in Europe or in the States. Uh, you have to have very good grades. You have to take a nationalized test. Over here, it's called the MCAT. I'm not sure what it is in the UK. Um, You have to have courses predominantly in math and science. Right. And having said that, I wish I had taken the advice of some older doctors that I 
knew when I was younger and they said, oh, do everything else. Take Shakespeare, take speech, take theater, do anything but science. And I did not. I just did science. I majored in biology and chemistry because med schools want to know how you how smart you are in the sciences. Right. They're beginning to take students who are more diversified, who have majored in other things, non-traditional areas. But it's still true. You have to have good grades. You have to have volunteer work. You have to show that you're dedicated to service, whether it's community service or interning medical service or service in someone's research lab. Medicine is still a very difficult field to enter. And I don't know if that's going to change as people leave the field, what young people might be hearing from doctors who are leaving the field is that medicine is an area of endeavor in which physicians have very little control. Right. Um, and what I mean by that is the American healthcare system is very much business oriented. And I know in the UK, there's a national healthcare system, single payer. I think that's good, but a lot of physicians grumble about that. Um, and physicians tend to feel like they're hired help. They're right. not as independent. They don't control their own practices. So there have been lots of changes in medical practice um, in the last couple of decades, many of them for the worse. And the pandemic recently brought out all those issues to the forefront. Um, in every country, we saw how ill-prepared we were to take care of sick people, to prioritize beds, to staff ICUs and ERs, and we were so overwhelmed and it became so obvious that our doctors and nurses and therapists were stretched and spread too thin. I think the pandemic did us some favors by showing us those deficiencies in our system, but I'm worried, David, that it might be discouraging for young people who may want to go into medicine or nursing. Yes. They, they may feel like they're entering a field in which they're not going to have much control and they might get abused and they might be susceptible to overwork. And so my caution to young people is um, try to learn something about the specialty you think you might have an interest in. Try to go volunteer with someone in a clinic or an office or a hospital and maybe walk, shadow them, walk, walk in their shoes and see if this is something you really would like to do. But be prepared for the older physician to tell you, well, it's not the same as it used to be. And <laughs> you don't have much control anymore, and medicine is now big business. Um, so I, I don't want to discourage people from going into medicine because I think it's a great, great career. It's just wonderful. It's one of the most fulfilling things on the planet to me. 
but it does not allow complete autonomy. I, I think you're just being realistic, Susan. I think it's, it's interesting you're saying there um, and what you're saying there, because I know in Ireland and in, in the UK, I think at the moment as well, that a lot of healthcare workers are leaving Ireland and the UK yeah. to go Australia or Canada, New Zealand to work because they're looking for what appears to be a better lifestyle. Now, I don't know that because I don't work in the industry. But, I mean, listening to what you're saying, it, it seems to be quite uh, true at the moment that this seems to be what's what's happening. I mean, yeah. if we take it a step further, I mean, we're going to talk about burnout later on, but working within the industry as well, do you have to give up your time and your life um, within the field? You know, can your personal life be a challenge because your social hours are unsocial? Your personal life is always a challenge in medicine. And it is very dependent on your specialty. If you are a generalist, family practitioner, pediatrician, internal medicine, um, ER doc, ICU doc, pulmonologist, cardiologist, all the specialties that were hit really hard in the pandemic, you have, you have huge potential to be overwhelmed, whether by your employer, by your patients, by the system, by a pandemic, by whatever, yeah. a flu outbreak. And, and so it is your well-being within the field of medicine and nursing depends on where you work, how many hours you work, and how you approach work-life balance. Right. I am happy to report to you that millennial doctors, doctors born as in the millennial era in the 80s and, and early 90s, tend to have a better approach than us uh, baby boomers and Gen Xs. They tend to value work-life balance more than we did. And they say, I, I had a young partner who said to me, I don't want to work this hard. I went, what do you mean? You're only working 50 hours a week. And he said, that's too much. I don't, I don't want to work that hard. <laughs> but I said, God, I, I only said that when it was 60 or 65 hours a week. He said, um, well, that's that's difference between you and me. And he moved to a practice where he could be guaranteed 40 or 45 hours. He was wow. still an ICU doctor, and it was in a small town where he could go skiing in the mountains in Utah. And so some people are choosing within medicine while still practicing medicine. They are choosing to have a lifestyle that they want and one that is more healthy. Right. Uh, it is occurring, but I think people have to do that consciously. Con consciously. Is the salary worth it then, do you think, Susan, for the investment? I mean, I'm assuming in America especially that the cost of training between college and maybe specialty training, depending what area you're going to go into, will be quite expensive. Right. Um, right. Is it worth it or do you have to take a win at a young age to make sure you get your return of investment? I know it sounds very money orientated now at the moment but for somebody that's thinking 
that doctors make, say, 100,000 or 200,000 a year. Is that just total nonsense? And should you be just doing it for, for the love of the job? No, you should do it for both. And the money, the cost of a medical education in the States is huge. It's now 250000 roughly. Wow. For medical school. When, when I finished med school back in the late 70s, I had $69,000 in uh, loans to pay back. Right. That in today's dollars, that's $240,000. It took me 15 years to pay that back. In the States, we get paid for being residents and fellows. I'm not quite sure how it works in the UK and in Ireland, whether trainees get a salary, but I bet they do. And that is something to think about, David. You, It costs a lot to go to medical school. Yeah. It costs far less to go to nursing school. And people who are getting into medicine with huge debt need to understand it may take them a decade or more to pay back their debt. So different physicians make different salaries. The subspecialties always make more money than the uh, primary care specialties. Uh, I bet it's that way in the UK is similar to the way it is in the States, which is a disincentive for people to go into primary care. You know, in, uh, in medical school nowadays, about half the students that graduate want to go into specialties because they want to make some money and uh, not just take care of patients. You know, I don't know where all this is going to end up um, quite honestly, but it is different now than it was in the old days. I didn't care what salary I was going to make. I wanted to go into medicine to take care of patients. And then later, as I had a family and entered my 40s, I said, well, I'd like to be paid fairly, and I'd like to make enough money to have a comfortable living. I suspect that physicians all over the world make enough money to have a comfortable living, but they're not making what people in business and finance are making, that's for sure. So your younger listeners need to realize that Going into medicine to make money is different now. And if you want to make money, you need to go into business or finance. <laughs> <laughs> or win the lottery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or yeah. do dances on TikTok or something. Would, would oh, you do God. it all again, Susan? If you had a chance uh, to do it again, yeah, would you? I would. I would. would, yeah. Because the intimacy of working with patients and for me, my patients' mothers and fathers, the the teamwork that I felt working with nurses in a NICU, the the camaraderie interacting with subspecialists that I consulted with, being part of a great system, even though it was run like a business, it was still a, a wonderful, efficient, and effective system. And we saved many, many, many lives. And I got a lot of personal rewards from practicing medicine. Right. It felt good to heal babies and to sit with parents and answer questions. It felt good to give prenatal advice to couples who were expecting 
a baby with a serious birth defect. I enjoyed that amazing human connection. And I'm not sure there are many other than medical practice, nursing, psychotherapy. I'm not sure there are many professions where you really get that level of intimacy and personal human connection. I can't think of maybe teaching, maybe teachers, elementary, middle and high school teachers feel that same way. Um, so yeah, I'd do it again. I loved it. I even as much stress as I had, I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. How, Susan, this is one thing I kind of find interesting. How can you separate yourself? So say, for example, um, like a premature baby that may have issues or problems. I mean, how emotionally, how did you keep yourself, do you keep yourself detached or do you just control the emotions in the situation? Um, both. Both. Initially, yeah, initially you learn to detach from it. Like when you see a kid with, who's been beaten up by his stepfather and has cigarette burns on his body and, and uh, might've been dunked in scalding water. I saw that in Parkland emergency room when I was a resident, I was outraged. And, and we're, talking about, we're talking about babies here, is it? Or infants? Yeah, or? It was a baby. It was a 12 month old baby oh, that had word. been abused like that. So, in that kind of instance, you do not detach yourself. You emote. You say, this is horrible, and you get the kid care, and you write in the record so that someone will accuse that father of hurting that child. Um, so there are some things that we see that are so tragic that it is overwhelming. It is emotional. But most of what I did was tolerable unless a parent wanted to go further than a child could go. Right. What I mean by that. So nowadays in the NICU, we have ventilators and medicines that keep hearts going. And we have medicines to try an infection. And we have lots and lots of technology that help sick infants, but some infants are born with conditions that really do not allow them to live. They're not surgically treatable. And some parents, very few, are unable to let go. Right. And I did not like seeing additional therapy being given to certain patients who really should have been allowed to die right. peacefully without suffering. Uh, so your, your question was about how did I handle the emotions? Initially I detached and um, hid my emotions. As my children were coming along growing up, I became a little more emotional and I would share that with my husband because something would remind me of one of our kids and then as I got older, I allowed myself to cry with parents. Right. If they, if they lost a child and if the mom was upset, I would sit there with them and I would cry because she would say, I don't understand this. How is this God's will? Why would God take my child? And, and I would cry and sit with her and try to 
comfort her. And I maybe it was being in medicine for 30 years that allowed me to finally show my emotions. But the answer to your question is you cannot be emotional when, with everything you see. It will tear you to shreds. You have to learn to distance yourself and not be sad when things are sad. And sometimes you can be sad. I'm not saying you never can be sad or never cry, but you're not a professional if you fall apart in a puddle of tears instead of doing your job. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm just uh, in deep thought listening to what you're saying there because I think, I don't know if I'd be able to do something like that, what you've explained. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, did you ever feel like walking away at any point? Did you ever feel this is enough? I've, I know I like the job, yes. but I've had enough of yes. this. Yeah, when I was in my early 40s, um, I had a new job and a new NICU. We had moved because my husband had a great job offer. I had three little kids. My youngest was only a year old, and I did not like my job in that particular NICU. I felt very much an outsider. I left my friends behind in Houston, and I felt very alone as a young mother, a working mother with three children. So my kids were in a new school. We had a new home. We had a new neighborhood. And I was really struggling. And for two years, I struggled to make that work. My husband loved his job. And that was a problem for our marriage because I began to resent how happy he was when I was so unhappy. Right. So I left medicine, I left clinical medicine for two years to serve as a medical director for a health maintenance organization. It's called an HMO in the States. It's an insurance company that doles out payments for care. It's, it's just another form of health insurance. And I worked as a medical director there and reviewed cases and talked to physicians and went to meetings. And it was a very, very easy job, nine to five, no weekends. And I loved having more free time with my family, but I did not like not practicing medicine. Right. To me, it seemed like I had crossed over to the other side, that I was working for the enemy somehow. And and so I only lasted in that position two years, and then I went back and got a better job in another neonatal ICU. So I did abandon my clinical practice for those two years to um, help get my marriage back on track, to take care of my kids, to take care of myself. I think that episode was probably what young mothers today are calling working mother burnout. Right. I was so, I was spread so thin and pulled in so many directions, three kids, all the school activities, the new job, no friends, no time for me. I, I think that I was suffering so much that I just needed to get away to figure it out. And during the two years I worked for the HMO, it was, I did figure it out. And I figured out what I needed, which was 
to take care of myself, to have a job that I liked, to uh, have more time with my kids, to respect what my husband wanted to do. And that two years away really helped me to focus on what I needed to do to make my life practicing medicine work for everyone in my life, not just for me. Did you have any support upstairs um, in the hospitals themselves? I mean, if, if you're dealing with a lot of these stresses, for example, you mentioned family life and you, know, you weren't happy probably in your job at that moment in time, uh, trying to juggle the kids, uh, you know, trying to communicate with your husband. Mm-hmm. Was there anybody you could go to above that kind of could say, look, you know, take a bit of time off or yeah. um, let's talk about no. this? Or was there any system in place not, for that? Not at that time. There is now. And in some practices, that's an important part of the practice. I went to my division chief when I was unhappy and working too much. And I said, I'm having trouble with my nanny because she's working 50 hours a week and she really can't keep this up. And we had a terrible schedule and I had to work 12 days in a row and have one day off and then work another 12 in a row. And I said, I just can't do this. I've got to have a better schedule. And he looked at me, I kid you not. He said, well, sounds like you need to get another nanny. I said, what? Why don't you get a weekend nanny? And I went, oh, my God, that is not the point. The point is I'm working too many hours away from my children and my family. And he said, well, that's just always the way we've done the schedule here. So he was my direct superior, and he had absolutely zero sympathy. I should have walked out then, and I Mm -hmm. didn't. I I persisted for another year to try to make it work before I left. Um, I did have a friend who was another ICU doctor, pediatric ICU, and she and I would share stories and share uh, feelings about work-life balance, but she was a workaholic, and so I sort of said to myself, wow, she can do it. Uh, Why why can't I do it? Um, So the people that you have to discuss your situation with are so important. The people above you who may have some appreciation of how your practice is going can play a vital role in helping people to figure out what's going on. Nowadays, women in neonatology tend to have mentors. I'm happy to say I'm in a program that's being supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics where older neonatologists are volunteering to be mentors to younger women neonatologists for just this reason. We talk to them about salary and promotion and work-life balance and research and private practice and other ways to practice medicine than being in a hospital 50 hours a week. And the program has just started, but I am convinced that a mentorship program, whether it's a personal one or one that's created by the healthcare system, 
would be very helpful for younger physicians who are struggling with these issues uh, because there's nobody better than a mentor to say to you, God, I had that exact same problem. I tried this. I tried that. I couldn't make it work. I did this detour or wow. Um, I just went and talked to my boss and said, I couldn't stay unless my schedule changed. And my boss said, okay, or wow, I just couldn't stand that. And I decided to cut back my hours and go part-time to 70%. And so a mentor, someone who's older in the system, in your same area that you trust, can really be helpful to younger uh, physicians and nurses, answer questions, give advice, review goals, really make a difference in how healthcare workers are dealing with all these issues. And again, I think millennials are going to be better at that, talking with somebody else, than we baby boomers were. The baby boomers would just, you know, suck it up and work harder. Yeah, you could almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what, you know, we are, our, you know, the motto of baby boomers is we are our work. And yeah. it, it's not that way anymore. And millennials clearly don't want to be their work. They want to have a life too. Yeah, it's important too, not- that, you know, that, that people are, especially as, say, a patient, we, you know, we'd like to know or feel confident that our doctors and nurses and health healthcare professionals are well rested and are not yeah. dealing with the problems that we think we only deal with because most people actually put people in the medical field on a pedestal. And yeah. your own mind, I mean, when I look at a doctor or a nurse, I'm thinking, yeah, these guys are are switched on and are highly trained and They've no problems at home because there's no chance that, you know, the hospital that they're working for or the management would allow this to happen. And it's it's hard to think that this may be going on or is going on, if you know what I mean, within the industry. It, yeah, it is going on. I'm sorry to tell you. Nurse, yeah. Nurses are working extra shifts. Docs are working over. People are working way more than 50 hours a week. And people are still functioning on little to no sleep, uh, physicians that cover ERs and ICUs. And so it is happening. And I hope that the medical profession and that healthcare systems will begin to assess well-being among their workers. There was just a survey that came out, American Nurses Foundation. Uh, the survey was done in November of 2022, and it was just published last week. And it showed some really horrifying statistics, like 60% of nurses are stressed at work, and 20% have anxiety, and 45% don't think their employer cares about them, and 30% have had verbal abuse and don't have any way to report it, and 40% of them pick up an extra shift, which means they're working instead of 36 to 40 hours a week, then they're working 52 plus hours a week. And these are all 10 and 12 hour shifts. 
And so the survey showed that nurses in America are really hurting. Hospital systems, and again, the pandemic made it all worse and brought it all to the forefront, but nurses feel like hospital systems view them as hired help instead of as caregivers. And they are not hired help. They are well-trained, caring, thoughtful, patient, wonderful healers. And they do things doctors cannot do because we're too busy. Um, I was really sad when I read the results of that survey because I always thought nurses were doing a little bit better than physicians, but they're spread so thin right now, they're in trouble too. They really are. And I bet it's the same for nurses in the UK and Ireland. Yes, yeah, it seems to be that way. That's, you know, the, 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 all the media is, uh, you know, showing that there's strike action here and strike action there. And I can understand mm-hmm. it if, if that's the conditions that they're actually working on, which is, is not acceptable. But is the hospitals, I mean, it's all about money, is it? Are they all yeah, privately all owned in America? Money. It's about money because right. it's nurse it's uh, nurse to patient ratios for safety. We know California has been great about this. They pass laws requiring certain nurse to patient ratios in ICUs and ERs and NICUs and PICUs and places where acute care really is fraught with potential for errors. And we know from their data in California that specific nurse to patient ratios that are adequate prevent errors and make patients happier. And so why aren't we doing that in the whole country? Why aren't we writing laws that say you can't run an ER unless you have the four nurses that you need for this many patients and you can't just limp by with three? we could we could change, I think, we could change how um, hospitals especially look at nurses as hired help because they cost a lot of money. Uh, they're caregivers and they're trained. And I think, what does my daughter make? I think she makes somewhere between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars a year. And one of the reasons she wants to be a nurse practitioner, she said, I want to do more things like doctors and I also want to make more money, mom. I'm not making enough money to live on. So nurses still feel like they're underpaid. And like for a salary of 80 to 100,000 um, in relation to say tax in, in the States or the state that you're actually living in, what type of, earnings would you expect it to make a month in comparison to the cost of living? So say, for example, an apartment or a mortgage or a car. Oh, wow. It would, you couldn't do it as a single parent. She wow. could not live as a single parent on that salary, not in Austin, Texas. She would have to live way outside of Austin in one of the suburbs and drive 40 minutes to get to the hospital every day to live on that salary. Right. So that's kind of shocking that it's Susan because I, I would regard eighty yeah. to a thousand as a hundred thousand to be quite good, but it, if too. that's not the case, it's 
Right. No. Well, I mean, it's adequate. It's fine. It's plenty because her husband works and for Whole Foods and he makes a good salary and the two together make plenty and they can afford to live in Austin. But there are lots of people living in big cities, paying high rents, barely getting by on salaries. Here's another anecdote that will just clarify this whole issue. During the pandemic, when nurses were getting sick and staying home because they had to, hospitals would hire what's called traveling nurses. And traveling nurses made per hour 150% the salary that regular nurses made, whether they were the ER, the ICU, whatever. 150%. So my daughter didn't get sick during the pandemic. She had to orient and help travelers, which meant she was spread thinner from taking care of her two patients to help the traveler with her two patients. And the hospital paid the traveler way more than they paid her. Uh, And this happened all through the pandemic, all over the country. Nurses were nurses who were single and capable of traveling to another city would go work for a traveling nurse agency and they go live in Nashville for six or eight weeks and work for a hospital there. And when they were done, they would go to Salt Lake city and uh, for six or eight weeks. And when they were done, they would go to Baltimore and, and they made buckets of money. So hospital systems were willing to pay travelers, instead of paying their staff more money to not quit. That's, that's, it's, that's just crazy. I mean, I, I don't know if it's just a global thing at the moment, but it's like, you know, highly qualified professionals that go to college, study hard. They're just trying to get a, a living, a normal living, nothing too excessive. And these struggles are still continuing. Yeah. It's it's just bizarre. I just and in the and in yeah. the next decade, we will see fewer women going into nurses. Um, that's already predicted. That and, and in that survey, it said twenty percent of them intend to leave their job within the next two years. So, you know, they're not going to leave if they're treated well. They're not going to leave if they're paid well. They're not going to leave if they have adequate nurse to patient staffing ratios. So why don't hospitals right now make those corrections? That's going to cost them a lot of money. That's why. And they won't have as much profit. Yeah. It is. It's it's the uh, the profits, as we we know. That's, that's the big announcement every three months. The profits, the profits, the profits. Um, yeah, that's, that's I'm shocked by that. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, well, let's talk, Susan, then uh, about burnout. I mean, We've chatted about your journey so far in terms of an, and the career itself and the positives and some negatives, but what, what is burnout? Burnout is, for healthcare providers, a state of uh, chronic stress that has not been dealt with. It is manifested as physical exhaustion, emotionally overwhelm 
depersonalization. That means you detach yourself from your patients or your coworkers. You say, well, that's not a big deal. Or you become cynical. Oh, good grief. It's not going to change anything anyway. Why, why bother? And then finally, you feel like you're no longer making a difference. Lack of fulfillment. Those, that's the triad. It's physical and emotional exhaustion depersonalization and um, lack of fulfillment. I was 60 years old before I experienced burnout and it snuck up on me. I always felt like I did enough to take care of myself. But that particular year, we had had two babies who had, one had a significant birth defect that was actually lethal. It was would limit that little girl's life expectancy. And yet she was put on dialysis and she had multiple surgeries and she was in the hospital for eight months, but was never a a candidate for a kidney transplant. Her birth defect prevented that operation from being done. And that case really bothered me a lot because her mother was sort of, um, and the baby's father left and the mother married another guy and then they had disagreements about how the baby should be cared for while this kid's living in the NICU for eight months and the staff fell in love with this child. She was a beautiful, delightful little child and they all loved her so much they wanted to keep taking care of her and do everything for her even though they knew she was going to die. That case bothered me a lot emotionally, ethically. There was another little case at a different hospital where a tiny, tiny premature baby, one and a half pounds, had a massive bleed into its brain, massive, massive head bleed that destroyed a lot of the baby's brain, everything except the brain stem. And we recommended to the parents that uh, we provide comfort care. And the father said, no, I want everything done. And for six months, this child got every technology there was to keep him alive. Every ventilator, every medicine, every procedure, couple of surgeries, because the father wasn't willing to say this baby has has is so damaged that he will never have any quality of life. Even though every specialist said that this baby is so damaged. And I thought the father was making a decision for the baby that was wrong. Right. It wasn't my child, so it wasn't my choice. But the father had a choice that I thought was On some level, I thought it was wrong. Of course, the baby lived and went home. And two years later, he was in a persistent vegetative state. Couldn't see, couldn't hear, couldn't speak, fed by a tube, seizures, cerebral palsy. He was nothing like a child. He was... (laughs) He was, as we predicted, he would be multi-handicapped with no perception of even being alive. But his father was really happy with him. And um, 
And those two cases bothered me, the ethics of those cases and the, the treatments that were thrown at cases which are relatively hopeless. Now, I'm not talking about comfort care. I'm talking about life-saving, life-sustaining treatments. Those two cases pointed me in the wrong direction, and I was tired, and I was working a lot of hours, I think 50 a week. And I noticed that I started to grow cynical in the ICU. I would say things like, what difference does it make, or who cares? Or if some mother was upset, I'd say, oh, big deal. Somebody go talk to her. And I would just say all these really awful things. Right. Not like my previous self. And a couple of nurses said, what is wrong with you? What's going on? Um, One day, oh, and I would hide from the parents. I would go to my call room and I would hide away. I used to love to make rounds in the nursery at night after all the work was done and the parents were visiting. I would chat with the parents and say hello, talk to the nurses. I stopped doing that. I would go hide out in my call room and I would only come into the NICU if they call me to come see a problem. I mean, a lot of people did that, but that was not my style. And I hid out and I didn't talk to people and I didn't talk to parents unless I had to and I dissociated myself from my, pra- my physical self. And I felt one day on round that I was no longer making a difference. I saw this beautiful little two-pound premature baby who was just doing beautiful. And I went, oh, good grief. We're not going to change anything. Who cares? And, and a friend of mine said, I cannot believe you said that. <laughs> And I said, I said, I know. And that's when I knew that I was burned out. And um, one of my partners had asked me one day, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. What's wrong? And he said, you just don't seem as compassionate as you used to be. I said, oh, well, that, that father really bothers me or that baby was so much trouble last night or whatever. I mean, in an ICU, there are just so many different things that get thrown at you to trigger cynicism. And I just chalked it up to being tired. But when I realized I was burned out, my practice was making a deal to cover a low-risk labor and delivery unit in our city and nobody else wanted to go over there because they thought it would be boring. You know, it wasn't an ICU, it was just normal labor and delivery, normal nursery, healthy babies. And I said, I'll go over there. And I cut my hours back to 35 a week. I went part-time. I went to take care of normal newborns who rarely had medical problems. I talked to new moms about breastfeeding and safe sleep. And I took a lot of naps and I talked to a therapist and I said, something's wrong with me. I think I'm burnt out. And the two of us sat together and talked about the issues and talked about things that had stressed me. And over the next year, it took a whole year, David, with, with naps, with exercise, with therapy 
with having lunch with friends, with writing in a journal, with practicing medicine that was easy. Talking, you know, looking at new babies is easy. They're healthy 95% of the time. And I slowly healed from my burnout. And I was so fortunate to have that opportunity to, to ratchet down my practice and pull back and take care of myself. But it took a year for me to pull myself out of burnout. Right. It was, I was surprised at that. Looking back, I guess the burnout had been accumulating over several years. And then when it finally hit me and I decided to go part-time, it took, a, it took a whole year to get better, to recover. And so that's why burnout is so important to talk about because some of your listeners might be married to a doctor or a nurse or a physical therapist or a respiratory therapist. And if their loved one comes home and says, I'm fine, I'm okay, no big deal. I mean, that kid died today or that patient died or we lost Mrs. So-and-so it's no big deal. It's okay. And they just drink alcohol or go outside and sit alone and mull things over. They might be in trouble. They might be overwhelmed. They might be detaching from their patients and their coworkers. They might be feeling bad enough that, that you might suspect burnout. And as a spouse or a partner of a healthcare provider, I want to encourage people to ask your loved one how they're doing. How are you doing when your patient dies? How are you doing when somebody yells at you in the clinic? How do you feel if you want this lady to go up to the floor and there are not enough beds and she has to wait in the ER for two days to get a bed? How do you feel, nurse, if you're given four patients and you really can only take care of two of them, but you have to take care of four, how are you doing? How are you managing that emotionally and physically? Because if we don't ask our loved ones how they're doing, we're not going to know and we might miss it. And the hospitals are not yet asking them how they're doing. The clinics are not yet asking that. Maybe one day they will be. But right now, it's our loved ones that have to say, are you okay? Tell me about your day. What are you worrying about? What stressed you out at work? What are the ethical issues you had to deal with today? Who are you talking to? We're going to have to do that for each other. David. Can you, Susan, could you have recognized when you had your one year of trying to recover from burnout, do you think that if you were getting some of the symptoms you mentioned, like, you know, you're being cynical or mm-hmm. if you're, you know, fatigued or lethargic, I mean, would you have recognized this again if it had happened again, say two oh, years God. later? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't let it happen. 
I wouldn't let it happen. And for the people who have managed to suffer through burnout and recover, or maybe they're not recovered yet, they know how it feels and they don't want to go there again. It feels horrible for a physician to think that they're not doing anything that makes a difference. When I lost my sense of fulfillment, that was the worst feeling in the world. That's why people go into medicine and nursing. They want to take care of others. It's very fulfilling to heal other people. And so um, I think it's important for us to take care of each other, to put some checks and balances in our system. Like what's wrong with every year asking physicians and nurses to do a checklist on burnout, to say how their symptoms are, to score it. What's wrong with each practice asking their providers to uh, talk about these issues once, once a month, to sit down together and have lunch, somebody's covering the patient. And so, you know, you're not pulled away from your, by your phone or your pager, but have to practice, sit down and talk about the things that are bothering you, whether it's the patient, whether it's the system, whether it's your coworker, whether it's the hours you had to work, whether it's what's going on financially with you, whether it's something else talk to somebody else about it. We can, we can do that. I think healthcare systems can do that. Healthcare systems can, can uh, allow physicians and nurses to check in and to talk and to provide support to one another. And that's the only way we're all gonna get better is to support each other until our systems change. Can burnout then, Susan, I mean, you were, would you say yourself lucky enough to kind of recognize and get a bit of help? But yes. if you don't recognize it and say you don't have a support system, or you don't have a family member or friends that actually say to you, look, you're, you're, you're being this or you're out of character or this is not like you and you continue right. on that same path. I mean, can it lead to more serious medical issues for you burnout, as an individual? Yes, yes. Burnout leads to depression. It's different from depression. It's a, it's a pre-depression syndrome. Burnout causes um, excessive drug use, excess alcohol use, uh, isolation. It, um, in physician surveys two years ago, 11% of physicians said they had suicidal ideation. Wow. Okay. That's, I never, that is a hell of a lot. I never felt that. Right. My lack of fulfillment never made me feel like I wanted to die. But if 11% of physicians surveyed, this was during the pandemic, this was right in the thick of it, 2021. That's horrible. And how many of them were getting therapy? It was like, 20%. It was some really low number of people getting therapy, but admitting that they had suicidal ideations. So burnout can kill you. You're right. Burnout is deadly. And 
if it doesn't hurt you with alcohol and drugs, it's going to get you some way. If you don't treat it, if you don't talk to somebody, if you don't take care of the issues, if you don't get some space, take a break, figure out what it is that puts you in that dark, dark place. Is, I mean, it's kind of just, just a frightening statistic. Is, though, are we talking about lack of sleep here as well, or just generally overworked and stressed? Because obviously studies have been done that, you know, if we don't sleep, I think it's, it's, all it's not good. <laughs> yeah. for, me, it, for me, it was lack of sleep. Because if you're working a 24-hour shift, or even if you're working a 16, 12 or a 16, it, yeah, it's, it's all three. I think lack of sleep contributes to physical exhaustion and em- being emotionally overwhelmed. And then the other symptoms of you detach yourself from your work, from your patients, from your coworkers. And then finally, you lack fulfillment. You, you don't think you're making a difference. So clearly schedules are important. Clearly sleep is important. Clearly exercise is important. Um, human connection is important. Peers, colleagues, if we're at work and somebody drags in and says, I'm here, I hope somebody will turn to me and say, are you okay? Because I didn't just go to work and say, I'm here. I would go to work and say, okay, let's get to it. <laughs> and so we know, we know when our coworkers are not acting right. We know when something is a, is a bother. Like there might be a case in the clinic and a crotchety old lady who's never nice to anybody and she's always yelling and you just want to scream at her. And, and uh, one day, one nurse, loses it and screams at her, her fellow nurse can, should pull her aside and say, wow, wow, bless your heart. I bet that was really hard. I know you really don't like that lady. Let's go outside and sit down and, and talk <laughs> and see how you are. Yeah. We, know, we know when our peers are overdone, overworked overwhelmed we know that and we're going to have to look after each other until the systems in which we work uh monitor us for burnout it's interesting there listening to there Susan, with you know you mentioned burnout for you pretty much was at 60. now i'm wondering and you can only tell me this from the time you started your career to that point of being 60 and reaching that burnout point has the industry then had it changed so significantly? So we mentioned obviously stress, uh, lack of sleep. So did you find between the time you started your career to that point of being 60 and reaching a burnout point that the structure or your employment hours uh, stress had enhanced or became irregular? Does that make sense? Yeah. The, the schedule had always been and the hours worked had always been excessive, but I was able to deal with it with enough breaks here and there. Um, I pulled back to part-time 75% when my daughter was a teenager and had an adolescent crisis. And I had a husband that was very supportive and I 
we diffused our stress on each other, uh, with each other. And so I guess the only reason that I did not suffer from burnout until I was that old was the cases were simpler. The technology is now such that we are prolonging the lives of many patients who really are dying. And I hate to say that. It's going to shock some of your listeners. But the technology in the current world is, and and the expectation of current people in our world is medicine is supposed to do everything and fix everything and be everything and solve the problem of the human body. And there's some patients who cannot live. Mm-hmm. And there's some that should not live. And I think the technology, that was what sent me over the edge. I think the technology used inappropriately is a big deal. And we're not talking about that yet. So, so generally, Susan, the technology is so advanced or so efficient that it can pretty much keep human life alive even though that human life yes may not be capable of life is that what we're trying to get yeah. at yeah i'll give you another example and, and it's and it's more complicated than that one of my partners rushed off to his mother's bedside she was sick and had pneumonia she was 85 years old and they put her on a ventilator and he had had a conversation with his mother the year before where she specifically said, I do not want to be put on a ventilator. I want to be allowed to die if I have a serious illness. Right. He rushed off to another city and he met his brother there. And his brother said, I don't care what mom said. I want her to get every supportive care. And my partner said, hey, brother, She told me that's not what she wanted. She didn't want to be on a ventilator. And the brother said, I don't care. And I was here first and she's staying. And that my partner's mother lived three weeks on a ventilator in an ICU until she died. Now that three weeks was hard on a lot of people, a lot of nurses, a lot of doctors, my partner, his brother, Um, who paid for that three weeks? Was that the right thing to do? That's not what the patient wanted. See, we have lots of things like this going on in our systems. Right. Our technology has moved further than our emotional and ethical ability to control it. And... I mean, in that scenario, I'm sure there's lots of those situations. Oh, yeah. I mean, we talk about the money thing again, the money side, and how much would it have cost to keep uh, a human life uh, with a ventilator for three weeks in the States? A lot. A lot. Oh, a lot. It's clearly 2000 a day just for the ICU bed. Wow. 
Okay. And that's not the doctor fee and respiratory therapist and extra. Oh, it's huge, huge amount. And I talked to my internist friends when I was practicing in a hospital where we had lunch together. And I would complain that that would happen occasionally with a baby where the baby would be, the therapy would be prolonging the baby's death instead of prolonging the baby's life. And, and we were moaning about how sad that was to watch. And they said, oh, my God, in the adult ICU, it happens all the time. Families will not let go. Right. And I went, really? And I said, oh, yeah. And if you look at the money, I think there's some studies from maybe Ohio State or somewhere. Healthcare dollars are spent more, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to phrase this, more money is spent for end-of-life therapy in ICUs than any other place in hospitals. That's a lot, yeah. I don't have the numbers, and it's been a decade since I've seen those studies, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's still the same. So we are paying for care for people that were not willing to allow to die in some cases. We're paying for care for people who do want to live and might survive, and that's okay. And sometimes it's really hard to know where your patient is. I don't want to sound like a grim reaper. Sometimes you don't know which patients are capable of surviving. And if they do survive, are they going to have any quality of life? Right. But these, the, we are now in a state in modern medicine where these issues are important and we need to start talking about them if then if we go back towards the burnout how then i mean you mentioned one of your blogs there that you felt like a fireman running around putting out fires right how how can an employer manage the burnout and workers because you know without being critical we obviously understand that businesses are businesses they have to make money if they make money they create employment it's like you know money makes the world go around as we say but how then can an employer do you think maximize the efficiency of the operation without burning out the workers the employer allows the employees healthcare workers to police themselves to support each other and to monitor how they're doing. Healthcare workers know when they're stressed, when they're tired, when they're overwhelmed, but the employers are not asking. Our employers have to start asking, like that nursing survey did, do you nurses feel okay about where you're working? 40% said they didn't think they could report when a patient yelled at them. That's terrible. Right. So the employer has to ask. The employer has got to say, this is important. Your well-being is important to our hospital and our clinic working. And we want to support you. And if somebody's burned out, they need two or three days to go home and sleep, not drink. They, they might need a week off to go get some therapy. Um, it depends on the level of burnout, and it depends on where they work. Um, but the employer, I think, has a responsibility to know how their workers are faring. So if the worker is feeling 
kind of low or burnt out. What's in your own opinion, like any suggestion of how you would approach a boss or a company supervisor to say, look, I'm such and such, especially when you know that the atmosphere may be a little bit negative or toxic and the possibility of negative repercussions if, say, you're out. Because the problem I find, Susan, is that it's okay, right? So say, for example, you're you're burnt out and you get your three days off or your week off for sleep. And then you come back off duty or off your rest and you go back into duty. And then the same cycle happens again because yeah. fatigue is cumulative and it builds up and sometimes you don't recognize and then you become burnt out. And then you go to your boss then say three months later on and you go, I'm, I'm, I need three more days off. And your boss is like, hang on a second now. You took a week off three months ago. What's right. wrong with you? Right. How, yeah. how can you manage or try to manage that with your, your previous experience? Uh, I tell people that they need to find out first and foremost if there is an employee assistance program in their system, at their hospital, at their clinic, uh, with their employer. And the managers and supervisors now know they have to hear these conversations. And big employers are providing employee assistance programs 12 visits with a psychotherapist, confidential, uh, paid for. If you have a manager or supervisor that doesn't understand, you're just in a bad spot and maybe need a different job in a different location. But big employers are will be providing some sort of employee assistance. And if that's not available, then the individual has to get some therapy themselves. In the United States now, we have a lot of telemedicine, psychotherapy, better help, and a lot of these where you can dial in and Zoom talk to a psychiatrist. And I don't know how the pricing is, but I would recommend anybody that's burnout to seek professional therapy. The issues that lead to burnout can be identified, can be rectified, and sometimes it does mean changing jobs. Sometimes it means telling your manager, okay, I know you think I'm a wuss because this has happened to me again, but I can't work 55 hours a week. I can't do this. I can't take an extra shift every week just to make this hospital run correctly So I'm going to go down the street and work for somebody else. I think workers are going to have to be willing to get themselves the help they need. It's, yeah, it's trying to get that, as you said, the confidence, sorry, not as much the confidence, but the help that they need. And then having the confidence to ask for that help. It's, um, and especially today, because I think it's, it is a bit of a doggy dog yeah. kind of world we that's, live in. That's why my main suggestion is to talk to your coworkers. Peers and coworkers know how each other is doing because we work so closely together. I mean, when you're taking care of patients, you're part of a team. And even in a clinic, you're still part of a team. And we know when somebody's off. We know when somebody's irritable. We know when somebody's and so 
we need to be willing to go talk to our coworker and say, hey, I'm worried about you. Can we talk? Can we go grab a coffee? Can we have lunch? I think we have to do that as fellow human beings because our healthcare systems are not keeping track of it. Let's move on then, Susan, to your Fabby website, susanlandersmd.com. And I have a little nosy here. So you have products, you have books, you have resources, you have a blog. So generally, what products and services do you have or do you provide that can help others? Well, I have um, focused on uh, products and services for working mothers. I have two ebooks about managing stress and conquering burnout. I have a self-care workbook. I have a blog where I write honestly about things that affect working mothers. I have a weekly newsletter that is free. And I just have found that doing this service in my retirement makes me feel like I'm contributing again. Yeah, no, it is. (laughs) Yeah. And so I wrote my book right after I retired, So Many Babies, to tell the story of what life in the NICU is about and to tell my story of being a working mom. And that book has sold pretty well, but um, I just wanted to keep giving back to working moms who seem to be struggling to try to make everything fit together and my website does have lots of offerings so I hope your listeners will go to it there is I have a checklist if you go to susanlandersmd.com forward slash burnout in caps b-u-r-n-o-u-t there's a free checklist with 21 items where you can score yourself to see if you are just stressed or if you have all the symptoms of burnout I think I have it here in front of me, uh, Susan. Is this the one that mentions, are you fulfilled in your current job? Yeah. Uh, Do you feel like you're paid fairly? Do you have control over your own schedule? And generally, how is that scored? So is it, you know. Well, there's one that's a self-assessment where all those questions are asked. And there's another one uh, that's scored. But that one, you have to be willing to give me your name and email address and join my newsletter list. And are you doing any talks, Susan? I mean, if somebody was to contact you, like from an organization yes. or an individual, do you do? Yes, I am. You are. Yes, and I this... am. I, I love public speaking. I've done it all my career. And is that via, would you be doing that like in person or can you do speeches over like the likes of Zoom and so on? Both. Oh, good. Okay. So you're, you haven't really retired, Susan, have you? You're still actually busy. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, David. I haven't. I'm still going full steam ahead. That's it's just different. You're probably now I'm looking now. after mothers instead of babies. <laughs> oh, you're probably busier now than you were when you were working. Uh, we are still are working, so to speak, but you're probably, is this more enjoyable, what you're doing now? It's different. It's They're different. both enjoyable. They're both enjoyable. I I really miss being part of a medical team. I really, it's like being an astronaut. You know, you just you're doing something that you can't do alone, and you work with good people, and you make a difference and save a life. And there's just nothing better than that. Um, they're both good. They're just different. 
And where can uh, individuals get in touch with you? I mean, you're on all the social medias. I think you're on the LinkedIn here, yeah. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Yeah. Anywhere else? There's a, there's a contact form on my website. Um, at the, I think it says contacts. Yeah, I have it here in front of me. Yep. Yeah, where you can sign up for a free 30-minute consultation. You can sign up for a newsletter. You can just send me an email message. I read them all. And what does that the consultation involve, uh, Susan, if somebody was to call you up? Just talking for 30 minutes uh, and answering questions and trying to isolate issues that are important based on my personal and professional experience. I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not practicing psychotherapy, but I know enough to talk to other working mothers about their issues. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. You have so much information there on your website. And uh, once the podcast has been approved by Susan, I'll put all the links into the website and the uh, social media to get in touch with uh, Susan. So also, as we say, thanks very much to uh, Susan Landers, MD, for chatting today about burnout on the uh, Wellbeing and Career World podcast. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you, David. Take care.